Good morning, church. Please rise. Uh, have the blue Bible in the seats in front of you if you don't have one available. Uh, today's passage will be Mark 11, uh, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Beth, Bethphage, In Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thus says God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning that you've given us to come here and to gather and to hear your word, to hear of your conquering kingdom, Lord, and how you entered unashamed and in all authority. And I pray that the truth of this would reach our hearts this morning, convict us, call us to obedience and hope in your gracious sovereignty, Lord. And in your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get started this morning, I'd like to uh, throw out a quick reminder uh, that tonight, at starting at 5 o'clock at First Baptist in Wolferth, we will be having our uh, joint church potluck. Uh, so I encourage everybody to be there. Um, if you have signed up to bring food, uh, be checking your email because later this afternoon uh, you will receive an email that will have information on what you're to do with your food and, and bring it and all that. If you are bringing food, we also encourage you to be there at about 4.30. That way we can get all the food in place uh, before everybody uh, gets there. So, all right. So we begin. We now come to the final week of Jesus Christ's life. Uh, sometimes referred to as Passion Week. And the Lord comes in um, kind of with what might could be referred to as a holy hand grenade. This week is kicked off as he enters the city of Jerusalem uh, triumphantly and in authority. As we go about this passage, what I want us to recognize this morning is, is God's sovereignty over the, over the means, the men, and the meaning of all things that he has ordained according to his purposes. 
So we dive in. In verse 1 it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany, and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So up to this point, Jesus has been on quite the missionary journey, as one might say. He's traveled all the way across uh, the, the, the land, all the way from uh, Judea through Samaria, Galilee, all the way up to um, the land that is called Gadgalanitis. That's a terrible pronunciation. But up north where the Mount Hermon is located, where we see the Mount, uh, or we, where we see the Transfiguration. Up to this point, Jesus has traveled over approximately 3,125 miles by foot. That's not to include the travels he made on on boat. And um, he has ministered in over uh, 16 different towns or cities. This also does not include the times where he was speaking in pastures or fields or uh, things of that nature. So he has been on a great journey uh, leading and teaching the people concerning the things about himself and his coming. And now here he stands east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, looking down towards the east gate. <clears throat> and this will not be just another entry into the city where before Jesus would come in as any other, or sometimes he would come in a little bit incognito, sneaking into the town. This time, uh, Jesus comes in uh, as he rightfully is, the king of of Jerusalem. Yet even so, it would not be as the Jews were expecting uh, their king to arrive in every aspect. So Jesus commands his disciples to go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Here in this moment, Christ displays his divine sovereign providence over the means at which he will be using to enter the city. Uh, Christ doesn't say, go into the city or go into the surrounding towns and wander about, and eventually when you find a donkey somewhere, bring it to me. No, he's, he's quite accurate and specific in his command. He says, go into the town in front of you, and immediately you will find a colt tied. This is not a random shot in the dark. This is sovereignty. If I were to tell you that, hey, for the church potluck, I need you to go down the block, three blocks, and then take a right, and there standing in the street will be a turkey, I need you to gather that for our dinner tonight, the odds of that actually coming true or happening are very, very slim. (laughs) Um, Unlikely. And so in this moment, the disciples are witnessing the divine sovereignty of God in his providence Uh, to fulfill the things concerning himself. From before time, God had predestined that cult to be precisely where he wanted it when he needed it. And he expected his disciples to have faith in his authority. Although they were unaware of the predestined cult, they had to trust Jesus and walk in faithful obedience, just as we are called to. 
You read the commands and the instructions of the Lord in the word. But yet we must be faithful to obey, trusting that God will provide all the means necessary concerning the things he has instructed us to do. God commands us to do all kinds of things throughout scripture. He commands us to give. Do we give faithfully, believing that the Lord will provide the means to be faithful in giving? He commands us to go out and make disciples. Are we faithful in in obedience in that? Do we walk in obedience, trusting that when we go out, there are some out there who he is calling, who he will provide to be his disciples? In all of these things, we have to know that God has, in his sovereignty, planned and predestined all of these things to take place place for his glory and be encouraged because not only does God sovereignly provide for us according to his uh, purposes, but also, but he also knows the challenges and the obstacles which we will encounter. It says here that if anyone, Jesus said to them, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. God is not only sovereign over what he has commanded us to do, but he is also sovereign over the obstacles and challenges and people we encounter along the way. This is, this is what he is teaching his disciples. Isn't it a great, isn't it gracious of Jesus to not only instruct the disciples on the task, the main task that they're supposed to go about, but to also give them construction concerning the obstacles they would encounter? I think oftentimes we can be tempted to think, well, you know, I wish Jesus, you know, would give me instructions on how I'm to respond and react to all the obstacles I encounter in life, to which I would humbly reply, he has. He goes on to say, the Lord has, uh, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. This was the instruction he told the disciples to respond to those who questioned them concerning the confiscation of the cult or donkeys. Anytime God requires something of us, we should give it willingly because it is a gift from God anyway. But notice the kindness of God, the kindness of Jesus to return the donkey to the person that he has acquired it from. Um, Mark taught, uh, Pastor Mark taught a couple weeks ago on Mark 10, uh, 29 and 31, which says this, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. God is not only kind in returning to us the things he requires to us under no obligation to do so other than his simple kindness. But yet what he returns to us is sanctified. And what when God requires of us. Our, our life, as Romans tell us, uh, sincere worship is to lay our life down as a living sacrifice. But what is what occurs in that moment? God takes what is cursed and he turns it into a blessing. Where we were once accursed, and when we offer our lives to, to Christ as a sacrifice, he makes us into a blessing. 
When we offer our stuff to God in obedience, he takes what we give him, the natural regular things of life, and he returns them to us even more blessed. Now, I know that we have nowhere recorded in scripture where God returned more, or Jesus returned more donkeys, uh, to this, uh, to these owners or, um, any special, particularly blessed donkey. But it's worth asking the question, what is the greatest blessing you could receive from the things that God has given you on this earth? And I think that the answer that we would see here in this text is for it to be used by God for his kingdom. Anything that we have, the greatest blessing we could get from that thing is that it be used by God for his kingdom. Whether it be our time or our money or our cars or our houses, whatever it be, all that we have, its most blessed state is to be used for the kingdom of God. Starting in verse 4, it goes, it goes on to say, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So what just happened here? The disciples just witnessed first-hand sovereignty. Jesus tells them of the donkey that they had yet, that the disciples had not yet seen, for they didn't, they were unaware of the predestined donkey. And they go, they follow the instruction of the Lord, and behold, there's a donkey. They go, they begin to untie it, and sure enough, they're challenged on their task. So the Gospel of Luke tells us that their owners questioned them and said, what are you doing with my donkey? I'm sure if somebody walked up to your house tomorrow and began to get into your car like they were going to take off with it, you'd say, what are you doing with my car? <laughs> Likewise, they ask the questions, and the disciples respond faithfully in accordance with how Jesus had instructed them, and they let them go unbothered. What should we glean from this text? God is sovereign over the means. He put that donkey there. Christ would be, Christ would require a donkey upon his entry so that the prophecy of, of Zechariah would be fulfilled about him. And God provided it. And in Jesus' sovereignty, he knew it was there and instructed his disciples to go get it. God is sovereign over men. I, Oftentimes, I will uh, think about an in, in, encounter I might have with somebody, and I'll think about how the conversation might go, and I'll uh, try to think in my head, what would be some good responses? But I would say nine times out of ten, the, the, their reaction to my response is not anything how I anticipated. Um, and sometimes, uh, particularly in terms of a debate, it uh, doesn't seem to persuade as I had hoped originally. But yet, here in this instance, the words that Christ had told the disciples to say to these owners of this donkey were exactly what they needed for their hearts to be obedient to the instruction of the Lord. It was all that was necessary. In God's gracious sovereignty, he worked in the hearts of the men, so hearing the response of the disciples that the Lord had given them would be all that would be required for them to allow the disciples to take off with their beloved donkeys. And finally, God is sovereign over the meaning, the purpose. Jesus 
worked all these things so that the disciples and us would see God's sovereignty over both nature and man to accomplish his great purposes. In all of these events, in, in events that are that are happening now and are about to uh, take place across the, the final week of Jesus' life, as we will continue to learn about as we read through Mark, you will see the absolute sovereign work of God through not all the things that occur and the things that are involved, the fact that Jesus is crucified on a tree, um, to the who persecutes and puts him there, and all the way down to the significance and the meaning that we take from these things are all worked in accordance with God's grace. We know this to be true, don't we? Romans 828 tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. In order for this to be true, we have to have faith that God is sovereign over the means that we come across in our life, that he has given us. We have to believe that God is sovereign over those who hear his testimony by our lives and those who do not. We have to have all of our trust in all aspects of our life to believe that this statement is true in Romans. Do we believe that from the job we work to the challenges of life that we encounter, the sovereignty um, are sovereignly there for the God-given purpose that he has ordained them to be there? They're there for our good. They're there for his glory. And they're there according to his purposes. Nothing escapes him. Nothing surprises him. And nothing stops him from accomplishing those purposes. In verse 7, it goes on to say, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field and those who went before and those who followed. Oh, well, we'll stop it. We'll stop there for a second. So consider their cloaks. They bring the donkey to Jesus. Um, they throw their clo- cloaks on it and they set Jesus on it. The cloak of a man was a significant article of clothing back in these times. The cloak was their protection from the sun during the day and their warmth at night. In these desert climates, the the sun is very harsh. And so I don't know if you peer into the Middle East, you'll see that often people are completely covered up. This is to protect their body from the harsh heat of the sun all day long. And at night, it gets very cold in the desert. And so it would be their warmth. The, the cloak was such a significant article of clothing to people back in this day that there was even a law about it uh, that was given to the people back in Exodus. Exodus twenty two twenty six and through 27 says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? It was such an important article of clothing that God felt the need to give his people a law concerning it, that if somebody lends you their cloak for the work of the day, to return it to him swiftly before the sun sets. And here we see the disciples and those who, as John tells us, run out to meet the Lord as he approaches the city, lay their cloaks down before him. 
as an, as an offering to, to be where his donkey walks as he enters the city. This was, this was a great sign of submission to the authority of Christ, saying, even the cloak of my back I give you, Lord, that you would use for your glory. If it is even for your entry that you would walk upon it as a, as a padding to your feet, I lay it down before you as service to you. What's funny about this, this, uh, picture of laying the cloaks down is it actually goes all the way back to first, uh, second Kings, uh, nine, where we see the, uh, the story of Jehu, who the son of, uh, a prophet, God had used to anoint King Jehu to uh, kill, if you're familiar with the biblical names, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was an evil king who married a uh, Gentile woman, Jezebel, who ended up bringing about mass persecution upon the prophets of God uh, back in the days of the kings. And so the Lord anointed Jehu to come, and long story very short, he anoints him. He comes into the room, Jehu enters the room where the commanders of the war are, and they, he tells them that he's been anointed of king, as king over Israel. And the commanders of the, the other commanders of war take their cloaks and lay it down before Jehu. And then Jehu begins to go in, and with a large army following him, and kill all those who had been part of the household of Ahab and Jezebel and the evil that was brought upon the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And here we see now Christ coming in, anointed by God to bring about the destruction of the kingdom of his people that have given in to the idolatry of the world and forgotten his commandments. Then it goes on to say, uh, it, oh, and then also it speaks of, I forgot to mention, the, the leafy branches. Um, I forget which gospel mentioned, I believe it's actually John as well, mentions the fact that they brought palm leaves before Christ. And this is significant. It speaks of the victory. Palm, the palm leaf in that day was a sign of victory. They're saying Christ comes in victory and, and they were rejoicing over these things. Now it goes on to say in verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna, quite literally, is translated to save us or please save us. It was a, it was a plea or a cry of, of, of help. Save us, save us. They're crying uh, to Jesus. They acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and calling out or proclaiming his purpose to deliver them. They go on to say, coming kingdom of our father David. This was significant because oftentimes the Jews would refer to their father Moses uh, to Moses as their father. And the reason that it's important that we recognize that, that they referred to Jesus as bringing about the kingdom of our father David, they were referring to the fact that this was just not another king coming under the law, but this was a king coming as the Messiah. The, the promised one who was said to be the seed of David, to come from the household of David. They're proclaiming Jesus saying, come save us, Messiah, one promise to bring the kingdom of God to our people.
It's interesting when you look into the Gospel of John because it, it gives us a, a, a look into a little bit different perspective, almost from the view of someone in Jerusalem looking on from this coming, whereas Mark takes the perspective of the disciples there coming with Jesus into the city. And when you look there, in John, it tells us that the Pharisees see all this happening as Jesus is coming into the city, riding on a donkey, all the people shouting, Hosanna, the king is coming, the king of our father David, Hosanna. And as, as the Pharisees stand there seeing this large crowd coming, they say this, they say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So prior to Jesus entering the city, he had healed Lazarus. He had brought Lazarus back from the dead. And John tells us that because of this event, event there were a lot of people who began to believe in Jesus. Hence the crowd that came running out to meet him, to uh, praise him as the king and Messiah as he entered the city. And seeing this, the Pharisees look at all of their works and all that they had done to skeeve thus far against Jesus as completely unfruitful. For here he comes now in all of his glory and all of his sovereignty, unstopped by all of their works. This morning for the call to worship, I had uh, used Psalm 2. And I think that what I like about that psalm is it, it explains this idea of the rulers of the world skeeving and having plans to come out from under the authority and the instruction of the Lord. And in their plots and in their plans, Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord laughs at their attempts to stop his kingdom. He laughs at their attempts to withhold him from accomplishing his purposes. He laughs knowing he is sovereign. And so the Pharisees, seeing all this, begin to be concerned. This event is one of many that will bring about great dispute and frustration amongst the kingdom of uh, amongst Jerusalem over the next couple days because now Jesus was not coming as some uh you know prophet who they had mentioned him in one of the other gospels it, it mentions that um when the people had asked, who is this? They say, oh, it's the prophet from Nazareth. So there were obviously some there who still did not recognize him as Jesus. They just considered him a prophet. But now here Jesus comes, squashing all of these ideas as their king, publicly and unashamed of it. He is coming as their king. Jesus does all these things. As Jesus does all these things, he directs the disciples to a donkey that they had never physically seen. He then tells them what to say uh, when they're hindered from doing completing the task which he had asked them. He then works miracles and means to win the hearts of the people so he will not enter his city unpraised and unacknowledged. And does all this so that the prophecy spoken about him might be fulfilled that Zechariah had spoken. If you'll turn with me real quick to Zechariah 9, 9. I want us to now read this prophecy. Zechariah 
Zechariah 9, 9, or chapter 9, starting at verse 9, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So he is coming with salvation. And he comes humbly. So all these things he works in his sovereign power, and he does them in all humility. He did not come as they were expecting they were expecting Christ to come as Jehu came, riding head front on a horse, sword in hand, ready to conquer, fearsome with an army behind him. But no, he comes in humility, willing to be their king and their sacrifice to redeem them to God. This is a true statement that you hear often people say they expected Jesus to come as a warrior king, and he came as a lamb. And in the coming time, they expect him to come as a lamb, and he comes as a warrior king. This is true. But something we must recognize about the state of of the hearts of men, if when you look at the Pharisees and you look at those of the city, it is not that they wanted Jesus to come as a lamb or a king. They didn't want him to come at all. They didn't want him. They didn't want him to expose what was in their heart. They didn't want, they didn't want him to, uh, expose their, the frailty of their power and authority. But yet here he comes, humbly, in all sovereignty, in all power, riding on a donkey, to bring about the kingdom of our Father, the kingdom of our God. So considering all these things, Let's read the last verse here. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Luke tells us that when Jesus entered the city, he began to weep. He began to weep because when he walked into the city, the state that he found the temple and his people was not good. It was unclean. Unholy, selfish, self-righteous, forgetting the commandments of God, and it was in a state of worldliness. When Jesus opens the gates of your hearts and looks in, what will he find? What will he find? And I can tell you what he finds. He finds the same thing. When Jesus opened the gates of our hearts and looks into our life, what is found is the same thing. Self-righteousness, ungodliness, and worldliness. 
But I am thankful that as we look at this story, that did not stop him from accomplishing his purposes. He still rode in as our king and goes about all the way unto death to die on our behalf, that that city and that old place would be destroyed and a new place would be built there in God's grace. So as we go about our lives this next week, let us rejoice that our king came. He came sovereignly and he comes in power to tear down the old and bring about what is new by his grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are sovereign, Lord, and that in your sovereignty, you work all things for our good. Lord, I thank you that in all of your power and all of your might, you came humbly on our behalf. You found a city totally destroyed, but yet you knew that. And you came to conquer, to reign on the throne of our hearts and rule that the nations would shout your praise and your people would be saved by your great grace. I thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us to walk in light of all these things as we go about our lives, encouraged by your abundant mercy, that you do these things in power and in sovereignty for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If I could have our uh, communion servers uh, come and prepare to serve. This is a great moment where we get to remember and embrace the work that God did in His sovereignty on that cross. As we rejoice and know that he came conquering by his grace, he came as our king, we get to take of his body and blood, which he accomplished to offer as a sacrifice for us on the cross. And what a great joy this is for us to get to do as his church, the ones who he came to save as he rode into that city to save his people. And here we see the fruit of that even till today. And we get to give thanks. So if you are in Christ, we welcome you to the table. But if you have not put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone uh, for your salvation, we encourage you this morning to not uh, partake of the elements as uh, Scripture warns us that to do such would be to drink judgment upon yourself, not find mercy. But if that is you this morning, I encourage you to come and find uh, Pastor David, Mark, or I uh, after the service as we'd love to share this hope with you uh, that you would be able to rejoice with us in our coming King. Um, we also uh, just want to let you know that we are continuing to take wine and they are clearly marked, um, so feel free to uh, pick which uh, wine or juice, whichever uh, your convictions uh, lie. Um, Feel free to go ahead and come, and then we will take them together. Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, for which 
uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take the cup. We thank you, Father, for your body and your blood that was offered as a sacrifice for us. And this day we continue to rejoice in the great gift that you have given us, your body and blood, as we partake as your people, sanctified, renewed, and sustained by you every day. And for this we give you thanks. Amen. If you'll place your hands in a receiving position, I'd like to read a benediction over you this morning. It comes from Hebrews 13, starting in verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Holy, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.